Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Before I start today's show, I would, of course, like to acknowledge that I am broadcasting today on the lands of the original storytellers of this place, the Wondery people of the Kulin Nation, here where their sovereignty was never ceded. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and those of all other First Nations people who may be listening today. We have an utterly packed show today. Best-selling author Tony Jordan has uh, wooed readers with her sharp, crackling wit, humour and arch observations. The prolific author now has a new book out, Dinner with the Schnabels, a humorous family drama centering a big, messy family. I should say fam- a dramedy. It's really a comedy. Uh, it's really fantastic. Uh, Simon Larson is in a slump. COVID killed his architecture business, forcing the family to sell their big place and downsize into a two-bedroom flat. Now he's reduced to helping his wife's bestie, Naveen, to do up his garden so they can use it to host a memorial for her estranged father. The days are counting down before he can reach the finish line. Plus, his wife's big weird family, the Schnabels, now have a new addition, Mon, a half-sister they've never met and who is now squeezed into their overcrowded flat. It's not all bad, though. He loves his wife Tansy and their kids, whip-smart eight-year-old Mia, who always seems to be doing homework, sweet-natured Lockie and... But as the memorial approaches, Simon is going to have to face up to a few home truths and they're about to blow apart everything he thought he knew about his wife and family. Tony Jordan is going to join me later in the hour to talk about her book, Dinner with the Schnabels and the craft behind it, but very, very soon. It's our biggest organ. It covers us. It protects us. It lets us feel and experience the world. But its colour has divided us, been used to justify systems of power and oppressed based purely on its colour. It is, of course, our skin, and it's a very deep topic, one that Philippa McGuinness covers in her new far-reaching book, Skin Deep. Philippa joins me soon to talk about her book and the craft behind it. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. You're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg. It's our biggest organ. It covers us, protects us, and lets us feel and experience the world. But its colour has divided us, been used to justify systems of power and to oppress. It is, of course, our skin, and it is a very deep topic, one that Philippa or Pip McInnes covers in her new far-ranging book, Skin Deep. Pip McInnes is joining me now on the line to talk about her book and the craft behind it. Pip, welcome to Backstory. 
Thank you so much, Marilyn, on your last show, no less. I know. I'm really, <laughs> I, I hope I will hold it together. But, uh, which you know, there's any number of skin jokes, uh, I have to admit, reading this book, I realised you just slip naturally into it. It truly does uh, cover everything. I want to, before I get too lost in the weeds with all of that, I want to um, to really read something from you know, the introduction to your book, uh, you write, you don't have to be a qualified dermatologist to know that our skin has layers. We can see them when we examine skin through a medical lens with a device called a dermoscope. But a microscopic view of moles and keratoses is only skin deep. To go beyond the surface, we must examine skin through a cultural lens as well. Now, you've certainly done that in this book. I, I do want to talk about uh, why you decided to embark on it and how you have gone about embarking on it. So maybe let's start with the first question. What decided you on covering what turns out to be such an enormous topic? Well, on Monday, I returned to the place where the idea first struck me, which is the big, busy waiting room of my dermatologist. And as I looked around again and saw so many people who were there for the same reason I was, for a skin check, and many of them would have had basal cell or squamous cell carcinomas or other non-melanoma growths, and a few of them would have had melanomas. There were people there... I could, you know, young people with acne, um, inevitably people there with eczema and psoriasis, and a small group who were there for cosmetic reasons that in some cases was kind of obvious simply by looking at them. I, I was reminded of why I launched in. I thought it really is amazing, and I still feel so fascinated by skin because sitting in front of me was a story about beauty, about illness, about public health, um, about anxiety in regard to our appearance. Um, and I thought, yeah, there really is a story to tell. And so I told it as best I could. Now, you really have got in deep with this. It's It kind of combines journalism culture, history, politics. You've interviewed people ranging from social media uh, stars to cultural therapists, uh, theorists to, uh, you know, obviously medical professionals to geneticists to activists and everyday people who have experiences in their own skin that are are stories worth telling. You've allowed uh, a lot of the the speakers in this book to really speak for themselves in topics that are so utterly sensitive and, and culturally so as well. Uh, so talk to me about how you went about doing this. Firstly, I just have the feeling that, that this was just such an enormous amount of work that you must have then faced not only uh, trying to work out which directions to go in, but also how to how to somehow make all the voices work in concert around particular issues. Talk to me a little bit yeah. about that process. Well, it, it was a huge amount of work. And when people say, how did you get it done in two years? I say, COVID. Um, all the, all the, and I got COVID, you know, towards the end of those two years myself, but all those lockdowns meant there wasn't much else I could do. And I had quit my job to, as a book publisher to work on the book full time. And I really did very little else. I don't think I was much fun to be around because I was very obsessive. And I guess that meant that 
I had access to a whole lot of things online. So they just said, yeah, sure, you can sit in on um, interviews and, you know, webinars and so on. Um, so that was really good. And the other thing is that a lot of people had more time during lockdown so I could have long interviews. Um, so... I got a lot done. And the the other thing I would say is that I wrote the kind of book I like to read mm-hmm. that mixes a bit of, you know, history and journalism, as you say, my own reading in history or cultural studies and interviews. Yeah, it's really kind of, I mean... Uh artful sort of long-form feature writing meets essays with, as you say, all these other threads pulled in. I actually was thinking a little bit about, um, I don't know if you ever read this book, Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History by Florence Williams, which covers a, you know, a topic that um, that is surprisingly uncovered, <laughs> given how, <laughs> nice how much, I know, given how much we actually, you know, see, um, see breasts around the place. People do know surprisingly little. I certainly did when I embarked on reading that book. And I feel similarly when I've read your book about skin. It is framed in a way that's utterly readable. You've kind of, you know, you could dip in and dip out or you can spend, as I did, uh, an afternoon reading the entire thing um, and drinking it up and then looking up everything you possibly can. It's a genuine Mm. rabbit hole. I do want to focus on a couple of areas, though, that you've handled in a way that I think is extraordinary. Firstly, um, talking about skin colour and the second one is skin cancer in particular. There's many, many other areas we could delve into. You talk about the workings of the skin, what, how it's made, how it works, how it operates, um, you know, all sorts of different types of issues around skin are covered here. Um, but I wanted to particularly focus on these areas because they were, you know, ones that I particularly found utterly fascinating. And let's talk first about um, the issue around skin colour. You did very much foreground this section by, by kind of really focusing on having um, a historical and cultural framework you've spoken with people who actually who share their stories around this talk about how you approach these particular sections and and this one in particular yeah I mean it's it's really fraught um in many ways and and I mean of course politically and historically, but also as a writer, it's such a huge topic. And in a way, it's one that I'm, on the one hand, not well-placed to write about because I'm white. My background is Celtic. So, you know, I can't tell other people's stories of racism. But I wanted to foreground those kinds of voices and I guess interrogate my own whiteness and that of the culture that I'm a part of. But getting back to first principles in a kind of biological sense with skin, I just started with a really basic question, which is why does some people's skin produce more melanin than others? Um, And that led me down all kinds of interesting paths and, you know, way back in time into prehistory and evolutionary theory. But it doesn't take long before, you know, you hit colonialism and imperialism and come across stories of, you know, dispossession that have led to the structural racism 
you know, in our society today. And so somehow telling that enormous story in a way that was still meaningful without being glib and relevant to the story of skin was challenging. Um, you know, probably on balance, the chapters that are explicitly about what we glibly call race took me the longest by far and the most consultation and the most reading. But in another way, race underlines the whole book. And, mm. of course, while I was writing the book, um, the whole Black Lives Matter movement took off. And that supercharged things and gave me a new way, and I would say a new kind of language to think and talk about race. That doesn't mean I'll always get it right, but I think we need to engage with the very, very fundamental fact of skin colour. Um, we can't ignore it. We can't say, oh, no, it's what's inside that counts. We're all the same. Well, biologically, we are all the same, but we don't act like we're all the same. So that's something I wanted to unpick a bit. Yeah, it's really, uh, and I think it's done really well. Even I, I think with lines where you're saying, you know, um, biology doesn't necessarily determine race, but, and yet, you know, there are these kind of signifiers that people will place emphasis on. Sort of interesting for me coming from a mixed race background where people have a variety of skin colours and you can very much see how that's determined um you know, how they're treated in the world or how the world perceives them mm. and even how they perceive themselves. I think we um, have a lot to to sort of read and consider in this book definitely on these topics. And, of course, it's a leaping off point to look into the people you have interviewed as well, which I find enormously interesting. Uh, let's talk a little bit about skin cancer because it is the other very um, big topic that I think um, is covered in this book in a way that, I, you know, I'm sure a lot of people, particularly in Australia where we are, uh, you know, definitely very susceptible given our placement in uh, close to the, the gaping hole in the ozone layer. Um, talk about this section because it is really one of those things that I think will make people immediately go out and buy a 1,000 SPF sunscreen as well. Yeah, that's true. Quite a few people have said to me already, oh, I booked a skin check. Um, I've left it too long. Your book made me do that. But, you know, it's part of the story of colonisation as well. You know, I, with my Celtic skin, wouldn't be here, um, you know, were it not for these major global forces that have happened, particularly since the 18th century um, in regard to Australia. But as I, you know, I mentioned the waiting room, most people in my dermatologist's um, practice, most people are there because of skin cancer. And in fact, two out of three Australians will have some kind of skin cancer by the time they're 70. And, you know, that's a statistic that now I mouth off quite easily. But sometimes I stop and think, that is incredible. You know, two-thirds of the population having some kind of skin cancer. And it won't always be melanoma um, that, of course, can be life-threatening. But even, you know, the, the, one of the chapters I write about skin cancer is called Just Had Something Cut Out. And that is an expression that Australians use very often, you know, cut out or burnt off or whatever, that is quite unusual in the world. You know, most people in the Northern Hemisphere are not having to have, and I'm talking about white people, are not having to have six monthly checkups 
with their dermatologist to see if there are any more skin cancers that have emerged. And it's costing the health system a fortune. Um, so I found all that really interesting and had a couple of skin cancers appear on my face and my leg in real time, which was good for, you know, the narratives, but not so great for my um, confidence about my skin and my dermal future. Yeah, look, I mean, again, I really, I hope um, everything goes well with uh, with your with, uh, you know, obviously your diagnosis and treatment. Um, and I certainly think that reading this book is is something that should make people rightly go out and, and consider these things, but also the broader context within which we have we think about skin, whether it's, you know, appearance or its function or any other of the things that you've brought up, including, of course, skin cancer. I'm mentally um, booking an appointment now. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thank you so much. I, it is. Uh, it seems such a short time to talk about such a, a, a huge topic, but thank you so much for joining me today on Backstory. Uh, for this last Backstory, Pip McGuinness, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Mel. I really enjoyed it, and all the best to you with your own writing. Thank you so much. That was uh, Pip McGuinness uh, talking quite briefly there about her book, uh, Skin Deep, uh, which is out now through... Uh, vintage books. You're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and there is more to come in this my final show. The wonderful Tony Jordan, I can see her waiting out there in the green room, is going to join us to talk about her new book, Dinner with the Schnabels, a uh, family comedy uh, that I think you will enjoy hearing all about. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. You're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg. Best-selling author Tony Jordan has wooed readers with her sharp, crackling wit, humour and arch observations. The prolific author now has a new book out, Dinner with the Schnabels, a humorous family dramedy centering around a big, messy family. Simon Larson is in a slump. COVID killed his architecture business, forcing the family to sell their big place and downsize to a two-bedroom flat. Now he's reduced to helping his wife... Uh, Best, wife's bestie, Naveen, do up his garden so they can use it to host a memorial service for her estranged father. And as the days are counting down before he can reach the finish line, uh, Simon has to deal with the fact that his big weird family have now got a new addition, Mon, a half-sister they've never met and who is now squeezed into their overcrowded flat. It's not all bad, though. He loves his wife, Tansy, and their kids, his sweet-natured son, Lockie, and whip-smart eight-year-old, Mia, who always seems to be doing homework. But as the memorial approaches, Simon's going to have to face up to a few home truths and they're about to blow apart everything he thought he knew about his wife and family. Author Tony Jordan is here in the studio. I could not be more excited uh, to talk about uh, this great book, Dinner with the Schnabels and the Craft Behind It. 
Tony, welcome. Thank you, Mel. I'm so um, honoured to be on your last show. I feel like we should be talking about that. <laughs> um, absolutely not. I'm, I'm going to be focusing on books. I'll just start bawling my eyes out anyway. But um, I should own that Tony and I have known each other for a very long time. I yes. was lucky enough to study writing back in the day uh, at RMIT, where I now teach with Tony. So I've seen... Uh, you know, her career sort of, uh, you know, from the start, which is quite an extraordinary position. Nearly 20 years Nearly now. 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Um, look, I, I just have to say, having seen that trajectory, I really feel like this uh, this book has got all of the essence of your craft distilled into it. All of the humour and clever writing and, uh, you know, references and, you know, world building and a absolutely um, exciting new cast of characters. And I'm going to get into that in a second because there's a lot of world building here. But let's let's talk about the, the Schnabels and poor hapless Simon, um, who is uh, the protagonist of this particular book. Where did they come from and uh, where are they going? (laughs) I really, it's interesting where characters come from, isn't it? It's really the only thing, the the main question that I've never found a satisfactory answer for. Um, I was just one of those kids who always played dolls and um, I always invented little conversations, weird conversations in my head with people and um, I don't know where they come from. I, I, I'm not conscious of taking them um, from anybody but, yeah, it's, they just float around and then they stick their head up and once I hear them talk, it, to me it's all about the dialogue of a character and once I hear them speak, once I heard Simon speak and, and the members of the family speak, then I get a pretty good handle on who they are. I want to I want to just read uh, the opening uh, paragraph of the first chapter so people get a, a little handle on where Simon's at. At first glance, Simon Larson looked like a man adrift. The hunch in his shoulders, the five-day stubble. He wore a stained hoodie and the track pants stretched over his waist had seen better days. He was tallish without being quite tall and beefy without being exactly fat. His eyes, once a sharp blue, were watery and faded with pouches underneath, like small hairless caterpillars napping. His hair, already silver, was scruffy and his face was puffy and grey. He seemed aimless. That would be an understandable assumption from the look of him. I have to say this uh, this kind of this could describe many of us after, <laughs> after lockdown. I, ha- I really did feel uh, quite a kinship for that, that description of Simon. You have this amazing way of uh, getting humour into your observations. Uh, there's a lot of little kind of wry asides, little um, descriptions that add this kind of arch humour or broadly drawn characters that still have a lot of life detail and, you know, believability to them. Talk to me about how you've, you've kind of knitted all that together. I just think the world is kind of ridiculous. Like the world is like stupid on so many levels. You you just cannot believe that this is the way it functions and the we we function and the way people behave and and the stuff that goes on. It's just continually like I find every day quite really amusing. And um you know also uh I think I was lucky that that you know I come from a kind of a family that would laugh at things. My sister is actually the funniest person you'll 
you will ever meet. Like if I sit down to have lunch with my sister, I'll pee my pants. Like she is ridiculous. Um, and my mother was pretty funny and my grandmother was pretty funny. I, I think it's kind of the way of looking at the world. I find it really hard to take the world seriously. Yeah, look, I mean, I think I think what works really well in this particular book is you do start with what is objectively, you know, a, a struggle street sort of story that a lot of us have gone through over lockdown. Simon's lost his job, his, a business he built up over 10 years. And in fact, uh, and I don't think it's giving too much away here to say the very opening chapter is in fact a kind of, you know, um, epilogue, I think, of, um, you know, uh, Tansy, Simon's wife, actually visiting a divorce lawyer. So that's what you get before you even meet Simon. Simon is uh, completely oblivious. In fact, that uh, the epilogue sort of finishes with um, Simon likely to be bl- likely blindsided is how it ends. But you are immediately, even in that setup, getting the humour of the situation. Uh, I have to I have to mention this. I actually read this out loud to my housemate. Um, there's a description of the uh, of the family lawyer that um, Tansy visits. He was a round man who wore braces on his chest, not his teeth, and his head was strangely two dimensional as though it was a colour photocopy of his actual head. (laughs) I just thought going through this book, one of the great delights was turning the pages and wondering if you were ever going to double up on a description and I don't think I caught you out once. I think you've you've really managed to come up with new new kind of... um, similes and analogies throughout the whole thing was that part of the the game or the fun that you had I actually loved reading this book like I've written all different kinds of fiction over the past 16 or so years because I I really just like all kinds of fiction so I I like reading historical fiction so I wanted to give that a go and I like romantic comedy so I wanted to give that a go and I liked a bit of tragedy so I wanted to give that a go so I kind of um, I'm very interested in everything, really. But this was this was a little bit different because it was a bit more strategic. Like this was the first time I'd actually sat down and thought, okay, everybody is pretty much going to be feeling like me, so a bit worse for wear. And and this time I'm going to just try and write a comedy that's, um, you know, that sees the world clearly, but but has a bit of warmth to it. I think it also come, came from what I was watching during lockdown one, which was, you know, Schitt's Creek and Ted Lasso. And I was naturally gravitating to those kind of messy uh, stories where people did the wrong thing all the time for the right reasons. And I, I kind of just wanted to do that, I think. Yeah, Simon's one of those characters that does teeter a little bit on the unlikable, but he's really salvaged by the fact that he adores his wife and he adores his children and he's really, you know, he's got these flaws where you can see he's a bit selfish and he's a bit self-centred and he obviously misses the point. But right from the start, you're you're armed with knowledge that he doesn't yet have, obviously, about, you know, his relationship with his wife. Well, you think you are. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of things in this book that aren't necessarily what they seem and I think it's a a really uh, interesting um, design for that reason. So I do want to talk about that. I, I want to come back to the characters because they are utterly fascinating. Uh, but you've you've structured this book in a, a very particular way. There's a lot of use of the faulty narrator to sort of give us some insights into Simon that perhaps, uh, you know, we can start to sort of you know, look into. There is, in fact, it's a plotted book. It feels quite gentle, the plot, as you're moving through, um, as many sort of uh, books about the everyday or about the mundane may be. But there's a lot more going on under the surface. So talk to me about I've plot. always loved this idea, like this idea of um, 
describing things accurately in a book. So, so at no point do I actually lie, but but making it clear to the reader that Simon's interpretations aren't right and and lots of people's interpretations aren't right in this book. I love that gap between um, what is happening in the world and what's you know clearly happening in the in the world to the reader and the cluelessness of characters. And I like the way that. You know, characters. I like characters that present in a different way than the way they see themselves on the inside, and I I, I like all those little sort of slight um, breaks between the consistency of the world. I find that really an interesting place to work because the, then the reader can see more than what the characters can see. It's fascinating. Absolutely, and I think um, I think there's a lot of little lovely moments. Uh, I, I'm really reluctant to get into. It. <laughs> Because there are so many, I actually genuinely, so many surprises I didn't see coming in this book that actually add to the, you know, the connection that the reader will have with the characters. I think Ted Lasso is, you know, a, a good comparison in many ways where you're, you've got a lot of that very arch, over-the-top humour, um, but also the human, very human connections that you make with the characters Thank as you. you're going through. Now, um, let's talk a little bit about the rest of the cast here. Yeah. Uh, and I am asking with a particular reason that I'll I'll get into later. Who are all of these various characters? Because we do get, even though it is, we're very much in Simon's, you know, mindset and point of view. We are starting to really see some very detailed characters emerge: Tansy, his wife, um, her brother um, Nick, her sister Kylie, her mother Gloria, who I have to say is truly the most extraordinary. Have I got no name right? It's Gloria. Gloria. Yeah, that's right. She's most extraordinary, <laughs> most extraordinary um, matriarch. She's uh, just something, and, and she she deserves her own book. Really, she's fantastic. Um, and then, of course, the kids: uh, Mia, who's this, um, you know, eight going on four. Basically, uh, who's just a this mastermind, and um, and Lockie, who bless him, is not the, the sharpest knife in the drawer, <laughs> but is quite adorable. And of course, uh, Mia, who is uh, the um, you know the sister that no one knew that they had, the half sister that I believe David Schnabel has left the family thirty years ago and has basically set up a new family, and yeah. she's now been brought into the fold. Yeah. So we've got this. This clan of people, I hope I haven't missed anyone. No, else. that's everybody. So I, I have a feeling that this is, you know, obviously not the last we're going to see of the Schnabels. I've got that? five books in my oh head. My and I've never done anything related before. And when I did, uh, when I published Edition, my first book, a lot of um, people were kindly saying, you know, it, what's happened, what is going to be next for these characters. And I just never had any, the smallest clue about how to, like that was story was complete as far as I, can, I was concerned. I had no interest in a sequel. Um, but as soon as I started this, I thought, oh, now I want, so I've already finished the, like the next one, which will be Kylie, the older sister. And then I've got the rest of them like already like popping in my brain. I've never had anything like this happen before. Um, so like it's it's a very absorbing and, and, you know, I'm not, it's not like I'm not writing about, you know, serial killers or anything. It's a really fun way to spend my time. It's 
It's great. Well, that's uh, well, and actually, I should say, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and I'm speaking with author Tony Jordan about her latest book, Dinner with the Schnabels, which may turn into a, a huge epic <laughs> <laughs> um, with uh, these family members. Five books Tony has uh, in her mind uh, that are around this family. I find this so interesting because when I was reading it, I was thinking there's many genres that we think of as series, uh, fantasy genre. You you know, perhaps crime, um, other things of that nature. But when you think about a family drama, we think of a contained book and, and this, I should say, I keep saying family drama, it is very much a comedy, <laughs> dramedy, let's say. Um, but this has so much in it and so much kind of plotting and building that there is this whole, you know, is it the same kind of world building, do you think, as these other kinds of genres? Um, I think it is the same. Um, I think it's the, for me, it's the trickiest part of writing a novel, really envisaging um, the world of, even though it seems like reality, it never is. And the timing of this was really tricky because I wanted to write a book that came out now and felt like now. So um, I didn't want, there's very few references to the pandemic in there there's the slightest little brush strokes because everybody's coming out of it and nobody wants to dwell on it but I wanted to make it accurate as the way everyone was feeling right now so that took a, a bit of work um, but I th also think it's again because almost all of 2020 I spent watching se television series and you just get used to like the next series and I think that's partly where the idea of the more than one book came from because you know, the Schnabel's series two or series three. I just started thinking about it in that mm. episodic fashion. Yeah, you could. I mean, I, I could really easily see how you could have given each each in the cast a chapter. Um, it could have been done that way. But I just really love that that is something you're thinking about on a, in a book-wide sense because you really get a chance to get under the skin like that. Because no one, pre no one really sees themselves the way other people see them. That's kind of the key. And also, no one knows how to be a grown-up. Like, none of us have ever been this age before, this age that we are today, have ever, like, it's all new to us. But when we were children, it seemed like our parents kind of had it together when they were much younger than us. So it's all this idea of, of the expectations of where you'll be at a certain point of your life and the way you see yourself inside and the way other people see you from the outside. Um, I just think it's an endlessly fascinating topic. There is a very definite um, plot con or device that you've used where you've had uh, the memorial service for David that's coming up and of course Simon has to rush to the finish line to create this beautiful landscape garden uh, for no money for Naveen, <laughs> um, you know, his wife's best friend, so that they can host the party there. So as a result you have this this natural kind of um, tension or build-up to an inevitable climax, which is this grand event that's either going to absolutely fall on its head, explode because of family tensions, because, you know, Gloria didn't know that Mia, the, the daughter um, that he, her estranged husband had, was going to turn up. There's all sorts of little threads going on that, you know, and, of course, the, the loaded Chekhov's gun from the start that we heard about with... Um, with Tansy visiting a family lawyer. We've got all these little things bubbling up. But I love all that, you know. So I great. love the idea of, um, as, look, this it's not a crime thriller, right, where you, you're trying to see if someone gets murdered in the end. Spoiler alert, no one gets murdered <laughs> in the end. There's no, you know, criminal to be revealed, nothing. I, I But I like the challenge of trying to make it a page turner anyway. Like have something that was really low stakes, feel good story about a family, um, but still 
tried to develop some kind of tension, some kind of um, narrative tension. Um, and, and I wanted to see if I could do that, like build a, a, a gripping plot when nothing really gripping happens. It was, it was really a fun challenge for me. We've certainly achieved that. I mean, I was hanging on and do read to the very end. It's definitely, you know, it has all of that kind of satisfaction of a plot-driven book uh, with, you know, the opportunity to also be with characters that are very engaging and a lot of, you know, really arch, fun writing that doesn't, you know, it's, it's arch how you write things but it doesn't tip over into overly cartoonish. The characters are sort of restrained enough to be to be believable. But I do want to congratulate you on this book. Before I let you go, though, you and I have obviously known each other since you started out as uh, writing your first novel. What things, and, you know, just in approximately a minute, (laughs) can you sort of summarise how you would advise any people embarking on their, their writing life to go about it or the things that you perhaps would wish that someone had told you? I think... As in everything, the trick is in the process and not the outcome. So the more that you can attach yourself to the process, whatever it is you get out of the work every day, and the less you can attach yourself to the outcome, whether you ever get published or not, or what happens in the end of the book, um, the better better you will be. It, It should be about the challenge that you set yourself every day to sit down and write the best words you can possibly be and put the rest of it out of your mind. It sounds like uh, really fantastic advice. And I do need to ask because you're one of those people that I, I have to say is enormously disciplined about how you dedicate your time to writing. Is there anything even in just the the mechanics of actually getting things down on the page that you would advise people about? But, you know, it's so easy, Mel. My, my mother and my grandmother never achieved any kind of education because they were around in a time when you didn't. My grandmother worked in an ironing factory her whole life on her feet ironing sheets every day until she was about 60. Um, and my mother also n- never just just worked in a whole lot of menial jobs, cleaning and um, and these kind of jobs. I, I'm, if this is not like I'm not in a factory and I'm not down a coal mine and I'm not, you know, on my knees plucking potatoes. It's a, it's a very privileged job and I never forget that. That's fantastic. <laughs> I love it. Well, Tony, I am... Oh, it's so hard to say, but uh, thank you. Well, I, it's, that's basically all we have time for in terms of um, our chat. Thank you so much. For, thank you for having me on your last show. Oh, I wouldn't have had it any other way. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, on my final backstory, um, with that, I should actually uh, say thank you to to a whole load of people, of course, thank you uh, to the very lovely um, Tony Jordan who just joined me. Um, and if you did catch that interview, I was speaking with Tony Jordan about her latest book, Dinner with the Schnabels. It's out now with Hachette and I very much recommend it uh, if you are already a Tony Jordan fan. Congratulations. You have a new Tony Tony Jordan book. If you're not uh, yet familiar with her work, then get familiar because it is truly fantastic. And I would uh, like to also very much thank um, Pip McGuinness for joining me earlier today to talk about Skin Deep again, one with a lot um, covered in it around the enormous topic of skin out with uh, vintage books. 
So uh, some thank yous to the many, many people who make this show possible. Thank you, of course, to the very wonderful Elizabeth McCarthy, who every single week um, has made sure that we have guests on this show. Um, She works very hard. She's recommended enormous um, numbers of books to me um, and has been incredibly patient uh, with me at all times and I am forever grateful for that and have a very dear friend. Um, I'm going to start crying, I swear. Um, I would like to uh, thank, um, you know, Beck Hornsby and, um, of course, Dave Houchin um, for, you know, their support throughout this very difficult last couple of years as well. Um, there are many, many others here at Triple R who know how much I love them. I hope if you don't, I'd love you. <laughs> um, I do want to thank uh, Pip McLaughlin and to all the other people who have edited the podcast over the time I've been here, including uh, Lara Shearer and Lisa Guy. Um, they've done a great job and their work will be up, I hope, for you to be able to listen to if you want to dip into some um back episodes of Backstory and listen to some of the incredible writers who've joined me. Um, this show would have been nothing without the the writers that have come on and shared their wisdom, their craft, and we have such a smashing publishing industry. Go out and buy some Australian books, goddammit. There's some excellent ones out there. Um, I'm really just thrilled with the, the local publishing industry. So, um, I guess that's it for me. Um, Thank you to all of you uh, listeners. Uh, You are what this station is all about. Thank you for for subscribing. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting me and others on this station. Uh, We would be literally nothing without you. And community radio is all about its community. It's hugely important. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.